By fate, I happened uh, to have swapped the on-call for the 4th of November 2011 with my colleague Gillian Bryce, who was on holiday in Thailand. Um, and uh, I'd gone to the hospital that day, not feeling 100% actually, and uh, for the first, probably the first time in my whole professional life, had said to somebody, foolishly, I hope it's a quiet evening because I'm not feeling 100%. Uh, so I don't say that anymore. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, so this is the talk about the, the M5 uh, incident. Uh, for those of you who want to know where it is, you can tell exactly where it is because this is the, uh, I can work this thing, this is the sign immediately proximal to junction 25 of the motorway for Taunton. So most of you will drive past this several times every year, I'm sure. Uh, and it's a rather unprepossessing bit of motorway. It's certainly not a bit of motorway I ever imagined would have the worst motorway disaster for 20 years. Uh, and it was a really nasty accident. Uh, and people died. These are the people who died. Uh, as you can see, um, one was from Gunners Lake. Uh, it seems to have packed up. One was from Gunners Lake, uh, just up the road. But they were from all parts of the country, because uh, being on the M5 corridor, people were travelling to and from various places. There was only one person local to Somerset. That's the, the gentleman at the bottom. There was a man from Woolavington, which is not far from Taunton. Um, there were people from South Wales... These grandparents were killed. There was a father and daughter who was killed from Windsor uh, and another chap from North Bristol. Uh, and all but one of these people died at the scene. That was the scene the following morning. As you can, see, you can clearly see now that, that junction sign in the Cricket St. Thomas near Char. That used to be where Mr. Blobby lived. Uh, <coughs> if you get to have your own major incident, you do get your 15 minutes of, uh, of, of fame. And I apologise to any of you who have ever had to watch me on the television. Uh, I clearly have the face for radio. <laughs> um, so what happened? There were six heavy goods vehicles, and, and this was the problem, really, uh, and, and you'll see from some of the pictures, because these vehicles piled into each other at the front and back of the accident, they actually trapped a number of other vehicles. M most of these 28 cars were trapped between these six heavy goods vehicles, and then there was just a towering inferno of flames. And most of the people who died, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, were incinerated at the scene. There were a total of 51 casualties. Um, many were treated in Yeovil, the, 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 the more minor injuries. And, and as somebody's already alluded to, the people uh, at the scene were fantastic. Uh, and, and a lot of people made some very sensible decisions that evening. Um, in particular, diverting all the relatively minor casualties to Yeovil, which was no small task to get them all there, nor for, indeed for Yeovil to manage over 20 people. They may have been relatively minor injuries, but they all needed to be properly assessed. Uh, and the local travel lodge hotel, which was right next to Junction 5, right next to Junction 25, the M5, opened up its, um, its lounge area uh, and allowed a lot of people who were shocked literally just shaken up by the, the carnage they had seen, to go there and rest, and lots of the voluntary sector were there, making sure that these people were now going to be able to get home somehow, be given a food and drink, and ordinarily most of these people would have pitched up in an A&E department, so they offloaded an enormous amount of work for us. We had a total of 16 Priority 1 and 2 casualties, and the first one arrived at quarter past nine, and the last one left the scene about two hours, ten minutes later. So that's where it happened. Uh, the impact was at 20, 25 hours, we think. Um, the inquest hasn't been held yet because of the delay in, in, in possibly bringing criminal prosecutions, which has now 
not going to happen, so the inquest is about to happen. And that there were only two calls to the 999 service, which when you see the scene is quite remarkable. You would imagine there were hundreds of calls. Uh, and I'm now going to try and play a video in a live presentation, which I've never done before. Audio, sorry. Okay, so that's an excerpt from that um, actual conversation. It goes on for about four minutes. Um, and, and the first time you listen to the whole thing for four minutes, which I'm not going to make you sit through, you think, why isn't this woman understanding that this is just a horrific motorway accident? Well, of course, most of the calls they get are not horrific motorway accidents. And in fact, to be fair to her, while she's having this conversation with this man, she is dispatching the fire, the police and the ambulance. You're just not hearing that during the course of the conversation. <coughs> The other thing that's remarkable is, um, is what a lucid description this man gives of the accident. He tells her exactly where this is, just north of the Junction 25 on the northbound carriageway. He explains that there's about 50 cars, of which 20 have crashed into each other whilst he's been there, which in retrospect is almost exactly the scale of this thing. There clearly were people dead at the scene, which he alludes to later on in, in, in the conversation. Uh, and the other thing you'll notice from that is he says there's a huge fog bank. Okay, so the very first call to the emergency services do highlight that there was a huge fog bank. Because later on, there was a big discussion as to whether there was fog or whether there wasn't fog. And we don't need to get involved in that. But it's very interesting that the man who made the first 999 call clearly states at that time, unprompted, that there was a huge fog bank. So we got a call to the emergency department just on an ordinary phone saying there's been a crash on the M5, half past eight. Um, I say it's probably nothing. Uh, uh, my own experience now altered but up until then my own experience of motorway crashes is they auto triage you either walk out of the car or you're dead at the scene uh, but not that night so at 2042, 12 minutes later we get a, a more formal call saying that eight's dead and as many seriously injured which is a remarkably accurate initial assessment also so one minute later I say, I, am I pick up the phone, obviously. <laughs> I'm declaring a major incident. Please action the necessary procedure. And I'm, particularly pr I'm only proud of one thing that night, really, which is this statement, OK? Because this hides the fact I haven't got the faintest idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, my colleague, John Tipping, is in the audience, and, and, and a consultant colleague, and he has written our major incident plan. Uh, and he's written it for many years, and, and he would have been the best person to have been there at the time, but it was me. Uh, and I only had the faintest overview of the major incident plan at that point. But by the end of the evening, I was pretty good at it. So I then ate my own body weight in humble pie and, uh, and said, all right, perhaps it is something. 
So we had to clear the department. It was an out-of-hours GP. We were lucky, actually. Often there isn't an out-of-hours GP in Taunton, but there was that night, and they took a lot of patients. Uh, the medical registrar, medical consultant came down and said, what can we do? We said, you can take all these medical patients to MAU, and they just went. It was miraculous. Even the surgeons took the abdominal pains to ward too. <laughs> and uh, we emptied the department within 30 minutes, which uh, was no mean feat. And then uh, everybody turned up. Junior doctors, registrars, consultants from all sorts of different specialties. Uh, we had a urologist as well. Uh, and what we did is we organised them into six teams to start with. Uh, we only had three beds in our recess room at the time. Uh, and we had three other fairly, fairly large cubicles. Uh, and we organised six teams. And then we got everybody else just to wait uh, in, in one area. Each team consisted of um, an ED doctor, a surgeon, an anaesthetist, and an ED nurse as a sort of core minimum, obviously with the patient at the centre. Um, and I was very fortunate because we, we were so lucky in so many ways, but because it happened about half past eight on a Friday evening, it was a changeover of staff from the lates to the nights, so a lot of people were still in the building who were about to go home. Most of the people starting the night had already arrived. Um, and uh, those people who had gone home and who had to call back hadn't drunk much of the bottle of wine they were planning to open on a Friday evening at that stage, and so were still able to come back and drive. So we actually had four of our six ED consultants in that night. Uh, one was stuck in Birmingham, couldn't get back because the M5 was shut, and the other one, as I say, was in Thailand. Who should have been doing all this in the first place? LAUGHTER uh, this is another abiding memory. Sorry, I know you know who that quote's from, but this is an abiding memory of the evening, is that normally um, I can't order a pencil in my trust, and yet I can declare a major incident. Uh, and the other thing is if I tell people to do something, there's, no, there's never more than a 50-50 chance they will actually do it. Um, but on that particular evening, uh, all these people turned up, and, and if I asked them to do things, they just did them. It was quite extraordinary, particularly the people who we... We, we, we portioned these different teams uh, and, and some people didn't get their first patient till over two and a half hours after they'd come into the department but I placed them in cubicles and said you need to stay there, don't wander off and when we've got a role for you we'll give you a patient and they simply did stay there and they didn't wander off uh, and it made the whole thing much easier to manage so um, the first, the first um, sign that we knew that this was going to be really quite big, other than obviously the initial phone call, was a helicopter uh, over the, uh, the, the hospital, um, which is strange, because whilst we have a helipad right outside our, our, our emergency department, um, we don't actually uh, normally have a helicopter. We've never had a helicopter land at night, uh, and it would have been very unusual. Well, we weren't actually going to have a helicopter land that night either because the helicopter was a Sky News helicopter, uh, which was on scene within about five minutes, I think, of the, uh, of the thing uh, getting onto the radio. Uh, and, uh, and they were broadcasting these sorts of pictures. So this is the first casualty. This is the only person who died in our department. She was a young woman. She was talking in the ambulance. She had a cardiac arrest in the, 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 the approach road to Musgrove Park Hospital. She arrived at 21, 17 hours, and she was in pulseless electrical activity. She had full CPR for 20 minutes with no return of spontaneous circulation, uh, and we decided to dis discontinue the resuscitation at this point. Uh, and we weren't quite sure where to place this lady because um, we were expecting an unknown number of patients at this time. We thought it might easily be 16 or 20 patients, and we certainly didn't have the space um, to put her in a, in, in, in a clinical environment. Um, and, uh, and I felt really bad about it. And in the end, we put her in, the, um, in a room around the back of our 
department, which we use for um, exercise tolerance tests for patients with low risk chest pain. Uh, it's not a bad room, but it's got no windows. It's a very, very cold, unpleasant place, really, to think you're spending, you know, well, you've just died, and now we've bunged you in this, what, this is a glorified cupboard, really. And I really did feel like bad about it at the time, uh, until I saw this man. Uh, and this man is one of our chaplains. I'm sorry he's smiling. He obviously wasn't smiling on the night, but this is the only picture I could get of him. This is when he was leaving the Baptist ministry that he'd been in for 20 years up on the Quantops uh, and uh, uh, coming to work as our hospital chaplain. Uh, he also a hospital chaplain for 40 commando marines. Uh, and he spent quite a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he's quite used, to, I'm sorry to say, to seeing young people dead. Uh, and he walked down the corridor, and just at that moment he said, is there anything I can do? I said, yes, you can go and sit with that poor young lady that we can do nothing for now and make me feel better. Uh, so he did. Uh, and he was one of the heroes of the night, really. So um, just a few pictures to, to show you the sorts of injuries. I haven't got all the, all the injuries here, but you can see that obviously there's a large pneumothorax here. Pulmonary contusion, intrapulmonary hemorrhage. Uh, you can see that on this, there's uh, injuries here to, to the spleen and to the liver as well. And this is the scene back at the, uh, the accident. This lady was very interesting. Uh, some of you may have heard about this lady. She had major facial fractures with uh, associated hemorrhage. She also had some intracerebral bleeding and, and swelling. But it was these, these fractures that were causing cons considerable problems for managing her airway. Uh, and even once we got her airway secured, uh, she was continuing <coughs> to hose blood from these uh, uh, Max Fax type injuries. Uh, the Max Fax doctor on call for Taunton that night was in Exeter. They have uh, a shared on call rotor between Taunton and Exeter. Uh, and we knew that we needed a Max Fax doctor to, to, to sort out this hemorrhage. She really was losing vast quantities of blood. Uh, so at that point, the urology consultant who turned up offering to help. Uh, a lady called Andrea Cannon, who I know quite well because her children go to the same school as mine. She said, can I do anything? I said, yes, get on the phone, and I don't care how you do it, but find one of our local MaxFax guys and get them in, because the guy from Exeter couldn't get to us because the M5 was shut. So she phoned round, she got <coughs> hold of one of our, our MaxFax surgeons, and he turned up, and then about 10 minutes later, they'd flown the MaxFax consultant up from, from Exeter, and he also arrived, and they spent about seven hours in theatre that night sorting this lady's face out. This lady, obviously major chest, chest injuries, hemoneumothorax, etc. And the scene, I've spoken to some of the fire brigade, the firefighters who were there, and it was a scene like they had never seen before. It was just an inferno, a tangled mess of lorries. So the other problem with the lorries is two of them were Ginster's lorries, and there's a high proportion of fat, you'll be surprised to hear, in a ginster pasty, and it means that when it gets to a certain heat, it, 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 it just, it's just like um, um, petrol or oil burning, really. Somebody with a splenic laceration. We, uh, we nearly lost this person because of delay in getting blood. Um, for some inexplicable reason, the, all the major incident patients have a unique pack allocated to them, uh, and for reasons nobody's ever been able to work out, the number allocated to Matthew C., had previously been allocated to someone else. This caused chaos in the laboratory. And it was only really sorted out by the fact that I personally went up and vouched for which patient the blood had come from. And there was a consultant haematologist who'd been called in that night as well, 
with, together with the blood transfusion nurse practitioner. And between us, we made an executive decision that this was the right blood and we were going to take this to theatre, uh, and the patient was fine. So more lung contusions, liver lacerations. And this is a bit of the scene the following day, and you can see that uh, this is one of the Ginster's lorries. But you can see the front of the accident has been basically um, uh, sealed by these two lorries colliding with each other. And uh, then the rear of the accident, similar collision of lorries, and then in between everything is just an inferno. Skull fracture, intracranial hemorrhage, and the wrist. So the, this is an important point, and we've learned this from other major incidents. So um, you'll remember the Kegworth Air disaster, well, not all of you, some of you of a certain age will remember the Kegworth Air disaster, which I think was in the early 80s, uh, uh, where a plane missed the East Midlands Airport and ended up landing on part of the M1. Uh, and uh, what they found there was, despite um, having reasonably good uh, initial resuscitation, uh, a, whole load, a whole load of injuries came to light, sometimes days or even weeks later. Uh, when they had the incident where that man drove his Land Rover with a trailer uh, off the M1 and hit a train, uh, I can't remember the name of that, but that was about 10 years ago, I think. Um, they'd learned from that, and they didn't just do primary and secondary surveys of these patients, they also did tertiary surveys, which meant that they were seen in the A&E, they were fully assessed the day after, and they were then fully assessed again another 24 hours, looking for other things that might be missed. And, uh, and we'd learned from that, and said, although this is uh, it's fairly subtle, there's an undisplaced uh, Collie's fracture there, there is that. And the point is, that often it's these relatively trivial injuries that aren't going to kill you, which if you don't sort out in an appropriate time, will substantially add to the morbidity and long-term functional problems of the patient, so are also important. So over three hours, from about um, quarter past nine to quarter past midnight, when the last patient arrived with us, we'd seen 16 patients, we did 16 CT scans, so overnight we developed the concept of the pan-CT scan for all our major trauma patients. Um, our radiologist that night was a guy called Tom Jones, uh, who's a, a young man in his mid-30s, I should think. It was his first night on call in our department. Um, uh, fortunately, uh, one of his colleagues also came in and helped. Uh, and uh, they were scanning all these patients, and they were simply writing down the key findings on a piece of paper, and we used a series of runners to take the pieces of paper to and from the clinical teams before the formal reports were then dictated. Two went to theatre that night. Another two went to ITU directly, one to HTU and one, very sadly, to the mortuary. Uh, afterwards, we had a ministerial visit um, less than 24 hours later. Um, it's very easy to be cynical about the, um, the politicians. This was a very low-key ministerial visit. This didn't get on the national news or anything else. They just uh, said they were coming down at about lunchtime. They did come round, and they seemed to be genuinely interested in what had gone on. The following day, Jeremy Brown came. He's our local MP. Um, and then the Secretary of State also came. Again, she seemed genuinely interested in what had happened, and, uh, and uh, I wouldn't be too sceptical about her motives for coming. I thought it was good that she came. Uh, radio, TV, and newspapers came endlessly. And you would imagine that you could cut and paste an interview. I mean, once you've told them the basic facts, you'd think you could use that on Channel 4 or ITV. Oh, no. You have to do it all to camera a second time. So I think you're going to be spared <laughs> my little piece of camera, so that's fine. Um, but uh, suffice it to say that they really struggle with concepts that you think would be quite straightforward. They got very excited about the word coma. 
uh, and and uh, they couldn't understand that you might put somebody into a into a a, um, a pharmacological coma for reasons of looking after them on an intensive care unit, um, as opposed to people who might have been in a coma as a result of their head injury, and trying to disentangle that. And I spent at least 20 minutes off camera with a <coughs> Channel 4 News person trying to explain to him the difference, and I don't really think we made any progress at all. Um, <laughs> so so it, it, it's interesting to, uh, to uh, try and uh, see things from their perspective, um, uh, and it is very easy to say things that they simply do not understand. The following week there was a memorial service. This is Sainsbury's car park. This is the nearest safe place to stand to the motorway, but the crash happened just up this embankment here. As you can see, it was horrendous weather. One year later, there is a, a, a memorial to those people. And so what lessons have we learned? Uh, the key thing for people is, is everybody likes a simple plan. At least, if you're reading a plan, you like it to be simple. If you've written it, you might want it to be nice and complex and make it look as though you've been very clever. But those people reading it, particularly in an urgent situation, want it to be simple. We basically only ask people to do whatever they normally do, so we shouldn't be surprised if they did it extremely well. But actually, the, the first rule of major incidents, I think, is only ask people to do what they normally do. Because there's enough people that turn up, but you have a whole range of skills that you could want. You don't need radiologists to pretend to be anaesthetists, or junior doctors to pretend to be senior doctors. It's uh, certainly not, not on the, on, for the incident we had. Uh, people were delighted to help. We even had midwives turn up who stood there quietly and just waited to do things. Um, I've been qualified a long time to be able to say that. Uh, and, and no task was too small, so I still thank Andrea Cannon, the urologist, for getting hold of the Max Fax doctor. All she did was make a series of telephone calls, um, but, uh, but, but it was key to the survival of that young girl. Um, uh, it's actually quite easy to stay calm. As long as everybody's doing what they're familiar with, they will do it quite well, and therefore it's quite easy to stay calm if you're in charge of them. Uh, and uh, this is great because I'm not very good at micromanaging so uh, I don't think you do need to micromanage that you've got these six teams they are resuscitating these people simultaneously they don't immediately mean to butt in and say are you sure that's the right sort of thing we should be doing for this patient you should leave them to get on with that in terms of the process there were some valuable learning lessons and I haven't put them all up here um, but I do believe you should see to everyone the chances, of finding, the chances of missing a major injury when you've got 16 potentially majorly injured patients is just too great to not do that. Uh, and the, so the, the risk-benefit is, is substantially in their favour to, to see to everybody. We introduced this rule on the evening. Once you've left the ED, you can't come back. Okay? This, is, this was the other key thing that I think we, we learned that evening that at the time and then subsequently we realised had just prevented all sorts of chaos. The problem is, if you leave the department and then come back, the space you were in is probably now taken by someone else. And there's a huge chance that you will muddle up X-rays, ECGs, bloods, paperwork, etc., etc. So everybody went from the ED, everybody actually on that occasion went to CT, and then the senior clinician with the patient decided whether they were going to ITU, HTU, theatre from CT. And because you had a, a, a constant set, sense of flow, but only in one direction, that minimised the chances of, uh, of, of error. 
The other thing we, 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 we learned that night, and, and there weren't many moments of humour, but, but this was one of them, was um, we'd been running this major incident for about an hour and a half, uh, and I started to really worry that this wasn't going to look good in the news because it appeared that we'd sort of killed or tried to kill a vast number of um, Eastern Europeans with the surname of Majax 1, um, and this is Major Accident 1, but I didn't know that, and all the paperwork was labelled Majax 1, Majax 2, Majax 3. Uh, and when I asked around, most of the people hadn't realised that that's how the numbering system worked either. So we now renamed this so that all our patients would be called Major Incident Patient 1. We're, you know, we're not shorter of letters on our labels. We can put them all on, and we can make it more abundantly clear. And the other reason this is very important is that because of this confusion, we couldn't get any of the IT systems to match up. So what was on the radiology pack system under one name would be on the ChemPath system under a different name or a different major incident system, and that was different from the main PAS. And it took the IT people about three days to actually be able to assimilate all the stuff together. So again, it wasn't just in the emergency department, it was for the next day, two, three days, there were still intrinsic risks in the way our IT systems couldn't be updated and couldn't cross-reference each other in terms of uh, potential risk to the patient. Uh, so my, uh, my, my top tip, actually, is it's much easier to be the nurse or the doctor than it is to be the policeman, the paramedic, and particularly the firefighters.